they, they say that all good things must come to an end. And again, this is the final message that I'll be preaching from the book of, of, the Ephesians, of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And it's really been quite a journey. I did say from the outset how excited I was to be able to, to preach these things to you and to walk through it with you. But I have to say that, that here at the end of it, that I've really enjoyed it even more than I thought that, that I was. I said in my email this week that I know I say this every time we, we finish a book of the Bible, but but I, I think this has been even even more special. Uh, when I, when I, I've thought about, when I've seen the things that, that God um, has done in our church family through this, this study. Um, but like I was saying to the kids, I'm, I'm really kind of sad to see it end. Again, they, they say that all good things must come to an end, but we know that that, that is not true. We know that in Christ that most good things will endure for all eternity. So all good things do not come to an end. And that includes the good things that we have learned in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Many of these themes that, that Paul has, has talked about here are going to come up again. We'll, we will we'll revisit these things again throughout the, the scriptures. These, these themes are, are throughout God's word. But, but again, it, it's, it's unlikely that I'm ever going to preach through Ephesians again. That I'm going to live long enough to do that. And so I won't be preach them again in this distinctively Ephesian way. So this study in the book of, of Paul's letter to the Ephesians is coming to an end, but, but it doesn't mean that, that what God is going to teach you from the book of Ephesians is going to come to an end. I, I pray that you're going to read it again and again and again. And, and, I, and I know that as, as I will see Ephesians in a new light as a result of our study, I, I trust that that will be the same for you. So now let's just do a quick uh, flyby of, of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And, uh, and again, I would encourage you, if you have your Bible here, um, and I hope you do, uh, that you follow along with me. And if, if you don't, that you can grab one of the pew Bibles um, there in front of you. If, uh, if, uh, if you're not exactly sure uh, where Ephesians is, it's, a, it's about in the middle of, uh, of the New Testament. And, uh, and so, so let's, let's just have a, a quick overview of the book of Ephesians. Well, first of all, as we've seen, the, the book of Ephesians is really divided into two halves. You have chapters 1 to 3 and chapters 4 to 6. In chapters 1 to 3, Paul lays down the theological foundations, the doctrinal foundations. And in the second half, in chapters 4 to 6, Paul presents to us the, the practical application. The first half is what God has done. And the second half is what we are to do because of what God has done. And so right living is grounded in right doctrine, but it works both ways. Right doctrine leads to right living. And so again, I, I, just as a reflect on some of the things that have happened in the life of our church through the, the course of our study, this is the, I believe, the 37th sermon um, on, this, on this book. Uh, I, I just really, I marvel the way that God has answered prayer. God has answered direct prayer, that the, the Holy Spirit would cause the, the practical um, exhortations of this book to really bear fruit in our lives for the glory of our God, that, that, that our lives would really be different in, in, in church, in our homes, in our workplace, be, because of these studies. And I've seen it, and I could, 
there, there are many examples of, of what God has done in directly answering prayer through these things and through these studies. And also the Lord has really answered prayer that, that, that God would cause worship to rise up in our hearts as, as we studied all those, all those, those doctrinal foundations in, in the first half of the book. And so again, God has really answered prayer through our study. But if you think about, about one sentence that really encapsulates the, the, whole, the whole letter, it's that unity with God in Christ and unity with each other in Christ is by God's grace. That unity with God in Christ and unity with each other in Christ is by God's grace. Again, I've seen... I've seen God revealing these things to our hearts and affecting change in our, in our lives through our study of these things. So having preached now through the book of Ephesians, I can better understand why Chrysostom called this book sublime. Why it was John Calvin's favorite book. I can better understand why John Knox wanted this book to be read to him on his deathbed. I better understand why Samuel Taylor Coleridge said it is the, one of the most divine compositions of man. So as we review this, this letter again, if you could follow along in your Bible, I think you'll be greatly helped. After greeting the, the church in verses 1 to 3, the, the Apostle Paul uh, goes on to proclaim a, a glorious doxology. It's, it's one long sentence from verse 3 to from verse 3 to verse 14. This is, this is one long sentence, praising God. He's praising God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit for their work in our salvation, each vitally performing a specific task in perfect unity, and that it is all to the praise of God's glorious grace. As we also saw that much of the focus in the book of Ephesians is on the work of Christ in effecting our salvation. As the phrases, in Him, in Christ, and in the Lord are used 38 times in this letter, 11 times in the first 14 verses alone. So all of the blessings that we received from God are received in Christ. In verses 15 to 23, Paul prayed for the Ephesian Christians that their eyes would be opened, that they would know the hope of God's glorious inheritance in the saints, that they would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power at work in them. Brothers and sisters, we have received the same inheritance. We have received the same power. Can you see the difference in your life? You can see the difference that God works in your life as you understand these things more deeply and as you build your life around these truths more firmly. Trust that you can. So continue to pray that God is going to do this in your life and that His work in His way will abound. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, Paul explained that the Ephesian Christians had been dead in their trespasses and sins. That prior to their salvation, their entire lives were sin. The same is also true for you. That prior to coming to Christ, every moment of your life was lived in sin, in utter rebellion against the Most High God. 
And so prior to the work of regeneration in your heart by the Holy Spirit, you were no more able to do good than for a trout to be able to walk on land. You were no better able to do good than that a dead man could dance a jig. Paul says that prior to your salvation, you were just that. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were following the world, the flesh, and the devil. There was nothing good in you. Nothing to commend you to God. But God, in verse 4, but God, two words that make all the difference in the world. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. Are you saved? Are you sitting here this morning as one who is saved, as one who has had the, 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 the obedient life of Christ applied to your account and your sin, your guilt applied to Him? Are you here as one who is saved? And you are saved by grace, through faith, that not of your own doing is the gift of God, not of works, so that you can't boast. There is nothing that you could do to earn your salvation. It is a free gift from God to you. But even though you have not been saved by works, you have been saved for works. In verse 10, Paul says that, that you have been, that, that you are God's workmanship in Christ Jesus for good works, that He's prepared in advance that you should walk in them. So God saved you to perform preordained good works by His power at work in you. In, verses, in chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, we saw, we saw how Gentiles, that's us, how we were separated from God, and that we were separated from the people of God, but that Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility in His body, in His flesh. Verse 14. So by fully obeying all of God's commandments in our place and by paying the punishment that we deserve on the cross, Christ has removed the hostility between us and God and has also removed the hostility between us and, and any brother and sister. We talked about how for, for the, the division between Jew and Gentile was even, was even greater that the, the division, the, the racial division and tension that you see in the southern U.S. right now. There was a huge division between Jew and Gentile. The Jews viewed Gentiles as dogs. And, there, and the, the Gentiles hated the Jews as well. But that wall of hostility has been broken down because of Christ. And so that in Christ, Jew and Gentile can, can come before God as one new man. And so as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we can also come together before God together as one body. Because that divided wall of hostility between God and us has been broken down, there's, there's nothing that can divide you from a brother or sister in Christ. That we are, as the church, we are one body. We are being made into a spiritual household 
for God through the power of the Holy Spirit. As A.T. Robinson suggests that Ephesians emphasizes God's purpose for humanity in unity with Christ revealed in the corporate life in the church, as Joshua was, was reminding us, so that we are united to God in Christ and we are united with each other also in Christ. Paul then expanded in chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, of the unity of the Gentiles with the Jews, declaring that this is the mystery of the gospel. And, and by mystery, this is not something that is just difficult to understand. It's something that, that you cannot comprehend. It is unfathomable. It would have been unfathomable for those people that the Jew and Gentile could be united under God. So Paul described himself as a minister of that gospel. Paul was a minister to the Gentiles predominantly, and, and so he preached the unsearchable riches to Christ to the Gentiles. Chapter 3, verses 14 to 20 is another prayer. It's a prayer that the church would be strengthened through the power of the Holy Spirit, that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith, that they would be rooted and grounded in love and would have strength to comprehend with all the saints, the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that they may be filled with all the fullness of God, verses 18 and 19. Have you ever prayed that prayer for yourself? Have you ever prayed that, that you would be rooted and grounded in faith, and that you would know the love of Christ, and that you would be filled with all the fullness of God? Have you ever prayed that prayer for yourself? Paul prayed it for the Ephesians, and, 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 and I'm committing it to you to pray for yourself as well. And just think for a moment about what your life would look like if God answered that prayer. If you pray that prayer, God will answer that prayer. Because He can do, as Paul says in this, in this benediction here at the end of chapter 3, that, that He is able to do far more abundantly than all you ask or think. God is able to answer that prayer and, and so much more. There with the, with the end of, of this section, with that benediction, that closes out the first half of the letter. With chapter 4, we're now into the second half where Paul moves into practical exhortation. It's the application of the doctrinal foundations that he's just set down. The first half was, was all indicatives. They're all statements of, of fact, of, of what you have received in Christ. And now Paul moves into imperatives. These are commands of how you should live your life because of what you have received in Christ. So Paul says that for those who have been, been blessed with all that, that God has done for them in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, this is how your life should look like. Think about the life that, that God is calling you to live from the second half of Ephesians. You are to walk in a manner worthy. To walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And again, if, if you think about the second half of Ephesians with, without thinking about the first half of Ephesians, you are going to tie yourself in legalistic knots. You cannot, you cannot, you will never live out anything of the, the second half of the book of Ephesians without, without considering applying the, the truths of the first half 
of Ephesians. Don't ever make the mistake of, of trying to apply, apply imperatives without considering the indicatives. Don't ever think about the, the, the oughts without thinking about the ours. Okay, don't think about what you should do without thinking about what you are in Christ and what has been given to you in Christ. And so, so with that, in, in verses four, in chapter four, verses one to six, Paul describes the unity of the church and our responsibility to promote it through humility and gentleness, through forbearance and love. So the things that the Dana spoke about. Because there is one body, there is one spirit, there is one Lord, one faith, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So because of the, again, there's an indicative in that too. Because of the unity in the church, we are to walk out that unity in the way that we live our lives. But who here thinks they're humbled? Humility is one of those things, as soon as you think you, you've got it, you don't have it anymore. Gentleness or, or forbearance and love. These things are naturally a part of our lives. We need God to work in our hearts to, to empower us to live out these things as Christ lives these things out in us and through us, again, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then down to verse 16, Paul moves into the responsibility that we all have in the church to serve the church, to help build up the body in love. And I talked about how I am an assistant minister. That really, you are the ministers. That my job is to equip you for the work of ministry. And that, that, that as your pastor, that's my job is to teach you about the things of God's Word and what it says to, to help you to understand and to walk in these things. That, that's, that's my job as your pastor. But doing it is a job for all of us. We're all ministers of the gospel. That's what Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 17 to 417 to verse chapter 5, 21, Paul talks about putting off sinful behavior and putting on righteous behavior. Put off, put on. Then we sang about that earlier. So Paul says in, four, in verses 22 to 24, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life that is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So again, the pattern is, is put off, put on, and then Paul tells us why. Just, just quickly, in 4.25, put off lying, put on truth, because we are members of each other. And towards the end of chapter 4 and at the beginning of, of chapter 5, put off anger and put on forgiveness and love, because God in Christ forgave you. 4.28, put off stealing, put on hard work, so that you can give to others. 4.29, put off words that, that tear down, put on words that build up so that you can give grace to others. 5.36, put off sexual immorality and covetousness and put on thanksgiving because the impure and covetous have no inheritance with the kingdom of Christ and God. 5.7-14, verses 17, 7-14, put off the works of darkness and walk as children as, as of light. Because it is shameful to even speak of, of what sinners do in secret. And 5, 15 to 17, put off foolishness and put on wisdom because the days are evil. 
And then finally, 518 to 21, put off getting drunk, put on being filled with the Spirit, because then you can honor God with your words and your life. Very, very practical teaching. Very, very helpful. I, I shared the illustration with you of if I, if I tell you to, if I don't want you to think of a carrot, if I say don't think of a carrot, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? A carrot. But if I don't want you to think of a carrot, rather, I'd be better off telling you to think about chocolate cake. Because if you're thinking about chocolate cake, you're not going to be thinking about carrots. And that's what, what the Apostle Paul is, is really doing here. He's saying, don't, instead of just trying not to sin, instead of just doing that, instead you need to, to try to live out the Christ life. And to be motivated by the things that God tells you to do in His Word. This last section of 5.18-21 really forms a bridge to the next section of 5.22-6.9, which is the family code. Paul talks about how those who are filled with the Holy Spirit, how they're to live. And he deals with, with three of the closest areas in our lives of, of wives and husbands, of, of children and parents, and of slaves and masters, which in our day and age really applies to the workplace. In 5.22-33, wives are told to submit to their husbands like the church submits to Christ. And that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And we saw that that, that was completely countercultural in Paul's day because it elevated the status of women. But I'd argue, I'd argue that in our day it's completely countercultural because it elevates the status of men. And what it's saying, what Paul is saying here is that, that men and women are equal before God in Christ, but that they have different roles, different God-ordained roles. And that by living out and trying to obey these commands and the strength that God gives, that you are really obeying God. In 6, 1 to 4, children are told to obey their parents so that they'll be blessed and that so that they will live long in the land that the Lord their God has given them. And actually, it's just the first part of that. It's the last part of that command is cut off. But, but fathers are then told not to provoke their children, but to raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So fathers are to take that responsibility to, to teach their children of, of the things of God. And this isn't just about having, about having daily devotional times as a family. Yes, you should have those. But it's about walking the, the Christ life all the time and, and speaking to your children about who God is and living out the gospel all the time. That's, that's what that means. In 6, 5 to 9, slaves are, are told to obey their masters because, because they're really working for God. And masters are, are told not to, to, they're told to treat their slaves well and to stop their threatening because they will give an answer to God. And I explained that, that slavery in the Roman Empire is very different from, from that which took place in the American colonies. That the slavery in the American colonies was racial. And it was a result of man-stealing. But, but what took place in the, in the, the Roman Empire was, was very different. There were, most of the slaves had either, either sold themselves into slavery, or that they were, they were really um, taken, taken as captives from war. Very, very different scenario. But the application that, that Paul says for them, that, that, he, that again, it's completely counterculture, because what he is doing is, is putting 
putting slaves and masters on equal footing before God. Again, this was completely unheard of in Paul's day. And in, in our own lives, we can't, we can't say there's a one-to-one -one correspondence. We can't say that, that we're slaves. Sometimes you might feel like a slave to your boss, but you're not. You can, you can walk away from that job. There might be consequences, but you can walk away from that job. You're not technically, technically a slave, but the application is still the same, that, that when you work for that difficult boss, when you do that, that thankless job, you understand that you're really working for Christ. This is your vocation. This is your call. That whatever God has called you to do, that, that you do that for the glory of God as honoring and obeying Him. Paul finished the body of this letter with the study of the armor of God from Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. Paul explained that, that we are fighting against the devil and his horde, and so that we need God's strength, we need Christ's strength in order to stand. He explained that Christ gives us the spiritual armor. He gives us the belt of truth. He gives us the breastplate of righteousness and, and feet that are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. He, he gives us the shield of faith. He gives us the, the helmet of salvation and, and the sword of the Spirit. These, these, are, all, these are all weapons and armor that, that Christ himself wore when he's fighting for his people. And he gives, he gives that armor, he gives those weapons to you to fight in this spiritual battle. He gives them to you so that you will stand your ground. So that you'll stand firm in the, the ground that Christ has already won for you. You need to prayerfully, prayerfully put on each piece of armor. Prayerfully take up the sword of the Spirit. Trusting that, that God is going to work with you, that He will give you His strength so that you will stand. And you need to pray. You need to pray on all occasions. You need to pray in the Spirit. You need to pray all kinds of prayers. You need to pray with all perseverance. You need to pray for all the saints. You need to pray for gospel messengers, including me, including yourself. You need to pray. But now here with the, the closing verses, Paul gives a personal greeting, commending Tychicus, the messenger who delivered this letter. And he, and he closes with a prayer for peace, for love and grace for the church. And so with the, the, the brief time that we have left, let's look at these two sections. In verses 21 and 22, it's, it's really similar, very, very similar, in fact, to the end of Colossians. And Paul is saying that he sends Tychicus to tell the church how he's doing and what he's doing. This is a reminder that these are real people with real concerns and real emotions. Paul would have known many of them personally, and he cared for all of them deeply, and so he's concerned for them. He, they knew that he was in prison in Rome awaiting trial, and they, they knew what was happening to Christians at this time. And they knew that this could very easily be the end of Paul. And so they were concerned for him, and Paul knew this, and so he wanted to set their minds at ease. He already said in, in 3.13 that, so I ask you not to lose heart for what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. He, he didn't want to, to lose heart for them. And 
he, he was really suffering because of, of he'd gone to send the gospel to the Gentiles. And so now he was, was in a, a Roman prison. So Paul sent Tychicus. He sent him with his letter and with news to encourage their hearts. And so even though Paul was in prison, Paul's mind is on higher things. We saw last week that, that even though he was in chains, that, 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 that the gospel was not bound. We saw that Paul's concern there was, was that the gospel would advance. And here we see that though he's in prison, his thoughts are for the well-being of the Ephesian Christians. When you're walking through a trial, what is at the forefront of your mind? When you're walking through a trial, what's your biggest concern? Well, it's, it's right and it's natural to ask for the Lord's help in the midst of a trial. That's a good thing. But do you ask only that God will help you by solving the problem and, and getting you out of the trial? Or instead, do you ask the Lord about how you can best glorify Him in the midst of the trial? It's really not necessarily wrong to, to pray the former. But your higher concern ought to be to glorify God in the midst of that trial. And, and what happens when, when that becomes your focus? When you're really focused on glorifying God in the midst of whatever is going on in your life? What happens is that, that you find yourself lifted up out of the agony of that trial even though the trial might, might not end. And you find yourself doing just what you pray for. God is glorified. And I've seen that in many of your lives as, as, as we walk through this, this, this book together. I, I've just in these past several months, I've seen that. I've seen that in, in the Hubbards even now. I've seen that in the crosses even now. Desire to glorify God in the midst of a trial. Paul had probably dictated this letter to Tychicus and then, and then had him deliver it personally to the Ephesian churches. And Tychicus also delivered four more letters. He delivered Colossians, Philemon, 2 Timothy, and Titus, at least. We meet Tychicus in, in Acts 24. He's, he's one of the Asians, along with, with Trophimus, who had traveled with Paul on his third missionary journey. Paul had sent um, Tychicus, or possibly Artemis, to Titus, Titus 3.12, and, and he sent him to Timothy, or will send him to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.12, where, where Paul speaks of, of sending Tychicus to Ephesus from Rome, probably to relieve Timothy, so that Timothy can come and to be with Paul in the, the second imprisonment, and the one that is going to result in Paul's death. So Paul clearly trusted Tychicus and held him in high regard. And Paul describes Tychicus as the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord. Well, this is the 38th and final time that the, that the Apostle Paul uses the phrase, in the Lord, or, or a parallel one. Tychicus is what he is in Jesus Christ. Paul loves Tychicus in Christ. And Tychicus is a faithful servant in Christ. And I think there's a couple of lessons for us here. First of all, we, we so easily slide 
and keep letting our regard for someone be dependent on their performance, dependent on what they do. Isn't it a blessing that God doesn't treat us that way? Isn't it a blessing that, that God doesn't treat us as our performance deserves, but, but that He treats us as His own Son? That He looks at us and sees the righteousness of Christ? That, that He looks at us as those who are in Christ, in the Lord? So I, I wonder, do you withhold affection from your brothers and sisters when they don't measure up to what they think, what you think they should be doing? Well, I, I hope not. I hope that you will love them in Christ. I'm hoping that you will love them as someone for whom Christ died. That, that you will love them in Christ. What about when it comes to unbelievers? I wonder, are, are you sometimes more comfortable with unbelievers than you are with believers? Do you get along better with those who do not love Christ and do not serve Christ? If so, there's, there should be concern for you for your spiritual state. You need to love unbelievers. You need to pray for them. You need to reach out to them with the gospel. But if you would rather spend your time with unbelievers than with other Christians, you should be concerned. You should really seek the Lord to expose what's happening there in your heart. Second, do you aspire to be a faithful servant? We saw in Ephesians 4, 12-16 that the, the role of leaders in the church is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. It, it's the same word, that, the same root word that is used here in 621, that Tychicus is a faithful minister. A minister is a servant. That's what the word means. And the only way for you to be a faithful minister is to be a minister in the Lord. The only way for you to be a faithful servant is to be a servant in the Lord. Now, now there are people who, who tend to serve in their own strength. And, and there's others, there's others who, who tend to serve for their own purposes. But neither one, neither one is being a servant or a minister in the Lord. Others don't serve at all. In the church, that they're content to come to church for, for, for an hour and a half on a, on a Sunday morning and stick around for a bit of fellowship, and then they leave, and they don't really think about what goes into the preparation for a, a service or, or what goes on afterwards, and they, they don't give little thought to the other people in the church through the course of the week. They are not servants or ministers in the Lord. But if you want to change, if you want to serve more faithfully, then you need to ask the Lord to change your heart. You need to, to, to ask the Lord to, to give you more love for Him and more love for His church. Some of the things we're going to be talking about here in a moment. And you know what He's going to do? He's going to make you a minister in the Lord. Well, finally, in a conclusion that is appropriate to, to the, the two halves of the letter, chapter 1 to 3 and chapters 4 to 6, Verses 23 and 24 focus on God's gracious gifts that are given to believers and the response of love that they are then to make to Christ. Paul here asks for three things. Peace, love, and grace. 
This is a, a common benediction in Paul's letters. And it really bookends the salutation that takes place at the very beginning in the first two verses of chapter 1. But here they're presented in reverse order. There he asks for grace and peace. Here he asks for peace, love, and grace. The word peace is used eight times in this letter, and it, it refers to a lack of hostility or harmony. It, it's harmony in personal relationships. It's harmony with God. And, and it's harmony in your own heart. So like we saw in chapter 2, it's, it's the peace that, that comes from God producing peace between believers and peace in your own hearts. Do you have peace with God? If you really have peace with God, if you have peace with God, it will produce, it is going to lead to peace with your brothers and sisters. It will always do that. But if your life is marked by hostility, by hostility with others, especially with others in the church, your real problem, your root problem, is a lack of peace with God. You pray for peace. You pray for peace with God. Are you praying for peace with your brothers and sisters? Are you praying for peace in your own heart that comes from, the, from that peace? Next, Paul asks for love with faith. Now, like peace, love is an important theme in this letter. Faith is too. Faith in the gospel is the way that we lay hold of the salvation that has been accomplished for us in Christ. But faith here is not another blessing. Faith qualifies the love. What Paul says when he says love with faith, he, he's saying that, that, that love goes together with faith in close connection. He's saying that love is, is grounded by faith and it is guided by faith. In other words, in, in order to have this kind of love, you have to have faith. And love comes from faith in Christ. This kind of love has its sights fixed on Christ. So it, it doesn't so much that the, the circumstances around you and what other people do and say doesn't, doesn't have the ability to affect you because you are focused on Christ and on following Him. That's what love with faith means. Paul prayed in 3.17 that, that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith, rooted and grounded, grounded in love. And this is a prayer that those qualities would, would, would continue and would characterize the Ephesian Christians. Are you praying that you would have that kind of love? Are you praying that you would have love with faith? Notice here too that Paul says that this, this peace and love with faith comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And throughout Paul's epistles, he describes, he describes the Father and the Son as the source of grace and peace and love. The opening of the letter, Paul presented the Father as the source of all and the Lord Jesus Christ as the mediator of every spiritual blessing. 100% equal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but performing different purposes for the purpose of your salvation. Finally, in verse 24, Paul continues, 
Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Now, grace is the most common benediction in the New Testament. And again, it's a vital theme. It is a, a, a vital theme in this, in this letter. As, as uh, Mark Dever says, that, that Ephesians is like a jewel that refracts God's grace. In fact, Paul uses this, this term 12 times. Ephesians, 11 of which refer to God's grace. This epistle declares that salvation is all to the praise of God's glorious grace. I'm saying that earlier. And Paul's final prayer here for the Ephesian Christians is for grace. It's how he began the letter and it's how he ends the letter. We receive grace from God because grace is an integral part of who God is. I'm going to be talking a lot about that through the summer as we study the attributes of God. We're going to see how, how God's grace is really a vital component of His attributes. Quickly to describe grace, it's, it's the understanding that, that to understand grace, you need to understand that we all deserve eternal punishment. That we all deserve God's wrath poured out on us for our sin for all eternity. That's what we deserve. But because of God's love, because of God's mercy, because of His faithfulness, He pours out grace. He gives us Christ. And in Christ, He gives us every spiritual blessing. That's grace. God gives us what we do not deserve. Again at verse 24, it's grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? And you have his grace. Now I can't endorse everything from commentator Andrew Lincoln, but he was bang on when he observed that, that everywhere the letter has referred to God's love for believers and Christ's love for them and for believers' love to one another, believing husbands love to their wives, believing believers love in general. But he says this is the only place where the believer's love for Christ is made explicit. And he adds, in this way the letter closes with a stress on the believer's personal relationship and commitment to Christ. So what does Paul mean when he says that your love is incorruptible? Well, that word most often speaks of immortality, especially in 1 Corinthians 15, where it's, it's contrasted with the, the physical body that cannot inherit eternal life. Paul says that, that this kind of, of love is, is incorruptible. This love for Christ is, is incorruptible. It is eternal. So Paul is saying that this grace will be with those who truly love Christ with eternal love. Interestingly, it's the Ephesian church in Revelation 2, 4 that has abandoned their first love. And, Paul, or, and rather, the, the Spirit uh, compelled them to, exhort them to return to Him. But if you have true and incorruptible love for the Lord Jesus, then God's grace is with you. God gives you His grace. It works both ways. If God's grace is with you, then you will have 
incorruptible love for Jesus. In fact, the only way that you will receive incorruptible love for Jesus is through God's grace. It is only through God's grace that you can truly love Jesus. Are you praying for grace to love Jesus like that? We began Ephesians with grace and peace. We'll end with peace, love, and grace. Again, you can't have any of them without grace. It's my prayer for you that, that here at the close of Ephesians, that you will love the Lord Jesus more now than you did in September when we started. When you think that all, when you think of all that God has done for you in Christ, the great salvation that you have received in Christ, when you think that you are now seated with Christ in the heavenly places, when, when you think that, that Christ has fought the battle for you and has won the battle for you, you think about how He has given you everything you need in order to be able to walk through this life to glorify Him. When you think about those things, these things that we learned in Ephesians, doesn't that make you love Christ more? Doesn't that make you want to love Christ more? Just imagine what the Ephesian church looked like as those things grew in their hearts in response to Paul's prayer. Imagine what our church will look like as these things grow in our hearts in response to prayer. When they say that all good things must come to an end, we see that your love for Christ will never come to an end. Neither will God's grace and peace.